0: I always feel, you know, like grateful, in terms of you know what I've basically I've worked for forward and continue to work forward, you know, sun up and sun down all the way through night. I enjoy what I do. Mm-hmm. It's not about money. <laughs> it's about having the freedom to do this stuff mm-hmm. here, more so than anything else.
1: Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On this episode, recorded in January of 2019, we spoke with Alex Harsley, photographer and owner of 4th Street Photography, and his daughter Kendra. Here's what Betsy bover founder of Manhattan Sideways, had to say about this business. When I asked
2: Alex Harsley if he knew who owned the 1968 Dodge Dart parked outside his gallery back in 2011 when we first met, his response was, that's mine. I purchased it in 1974, and I've enjoyed it ever since. My car is all about the good times. As owner and photographer, Alex describes the 4th Street Photo Gallery as a museum of the past. For 40 years now, he has been exhibiting both his own work and that of many other talented photography artists. 4th Street Photo is as much a community as it is a gallery. Alex has also had the incredible good fortune of having spent time photographing both John Coltrane at the Apollo Theater and Muhammad Ali when he was a young fighter. What his photos do not reveal in New York's history, sitting down with Alex tells the rest of the story. I encourage any art or history enthusiast to take the time to visit his gallery and to meet this warm and welcoming gentleman and to peruse his collection of photographs that pay homage to the city of New York.
1: Alex, could I have you introduce yourself and tell me the name of the shop that we're in right now?
0: My name is Alex Harshley. You're currently located on the east side At the 4th Street Photo Gallery. All
1: right, thank you. Kendra, could I have you introduce yourself as well? My name is Kendra Kruger. I'm the daughter of Alex Harsley. So, Alex, when did you start photographing?
0: I uh, got into photography early on when uh, my family got a camera. And I managed to hold it for about five seconds before they snatched it away from me. I would drop it. And I got a chance to look through the viewfinder, and I still have a memory of what I've seen in the viewfinder. It was like something that's been transported to a different kind of reality. So that was the beginning of my interest in photography. And that interest basically carried me all the way to where I am today in terms of trying to figure out different things about it, and things about it in terms of myself and the people that I relate to.
1: Did you grow up in New York?
0: I first and foremost was born in a rather interesting time, at an interesting time, in an interesting reality, which was the South. In 1938, three years into growing up, I guess I started working. The first day I stood up and walked, because I was born and raised to be a farmer. But in terms of that, I had to learn about things people go to school for nowadays and spend a lifetime studying on the farm. So once I came up here with that level of knowledge, I was 11 years old. I was also, I say, responsible for myself in terms of being able to do things on my own without worrying about any adults around me. So when I came to New York, I was able to fully enjoy myself and whatever I, whatever I wanted to do. Coming out of the South, I was restricted to practically everything. So coming up here, becoming familiar with the subway system, com- becoming aware of different parts of the city, different kind of nice places to go and hang out all day, like the Museum of Modern Art, or the Museum of Natural History, or to go to the libraries and just spend all day just mm-hmm. <laughs> roaming through these places, roaming through all the different train stations. It was just like this wonderful <laughs> experience. Back then, the city was like this, this jungle of reality. It was dangerous, weird, and ridiculous, but it was this energy that you got from it, as opposed to walking through the woods afraid the tree was gonna fall on you or something stupid like that. So eventually, I graduated from school. My schooling was very, I would say unique in terms of what, I, what was taught to me. My mother enrolled me into school, which was directly across the street from me, with a playground, and these interesting kids. What I mean by interesting kids, they, their parents was kind of like upward mobile, coming out of uh, World War II. So I, I came in to see, I came into my own thing at that point in time when the whole idea of war was quickly going by the wayside, and people was thinking about diffusion, families, and houses, and cars, and all these other things that people generally, you know, you grow into wanting for some strange reason. So coming into that era, I realised the kids I was with, they were gonna be somebody. They were gonna do something interesting. They were gonna be very productive. So understanding how that actually worked, I began to hang out with kids like that. Even kids if they lived someplace else. I wanted to hang out with them. You know, they we had something in common that we you know, we could communicate with on different levels on. And that grew into kinda of like an interesting group of people as I grew older and older and they Subsequently, you know, went into these areas that they actually worked towards in in becoming that. From musicians, painters, you name them, always across the board.
1: How did you develop your eye for photography?
0: As a kid, I had the ability to see, not just seeing, but to see and try to understand what I was looking at and how it all fitted in that that frame of reference, basically. So my uh, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, he taught me how to see in terms of looking at things and then explaining to me what those things are and what those things are all about. So in order to listen to what he was saying, I had to isolate my vision and adjust it to what he was telling me in terms of the vision that I should be looking at. In other words, there's something over there. There's something over there. You see how that fits together now? Okay, there's the stars over there. Now, what, you know, what time it is now? Okay, that star is there at this time here. If you come back at the same time next year, that star will be in the same place. So I was always pushed into those areas of thinking, okay, you put the peanut in the ground. Now, we're going to come back a couple of months later, and you pull, the, pull that peanut up and see how many peanuts attached to it. Logic, simple logic. So the people are like, well, how can you see? Well I had to see that way. You look across the fields and you could, like see that other patch of something that you planted and just how, 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 how well it have grown. whether or not you go and harvest it again. In other words, it's, it's a matter of isolating my vision. Most people can't do that. So when I got into photography, I said, wow, you know, I can really play now in terms yeah. of what I see. <laughs> so I can see it that way, I can see it that way, mm-hmm. depending on what kind of story you want to tell about it. So I began to practice doing that. Walking through the city, looking at things, I say that most of the time. Even today, when I'm looking at my own pictures, I say, "Why'd you take that stupid picture?" Then I look. I say, "Oh, oh, that's what that's all about. That's what, that little small thing over there. That is the picture." But in photography, there's so much information that it all all that gets lost over a period of time. In terms, of other things become more and more important where that initial information that I wanted to put there become less important. Now that I go back and look at it, I'm, I'm basically re- re-educating myself to my own photography. I always consider myself to be the greatest of all the photographers, okay? Why? I would say, well, it's the last person standing. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I did over a period of 50 years. Starting at a time when this thing was basically on the way out. Once I got around to having a family, my family became a major component part of the gallery. So my daughter, she like grew up in the gallery. And I guess because of the influences that she got, she is this independent person now.
1: Kendra, do you want to talk about how your dad's work has influenced your life and how his philosophy has influenced you?
0: Mm,
3: it's a deep question. Right now, a big theme that I think about a lot is how, I think how he was saying as, how he learned as a child to see in a different way. I think that's also something that he brought to both me and my sister, uh, growing up, both in this neighborhood and in this context of information, almost of how do you understand information from different perspectives and tune your vision to see things uh, in through different paradigms. So I kind of t- I took that um, into the world of science and looking at how. Things work on, in different dimensions and in different scales. I got really into physics and uh, both on the level of astronomy, but then in nanoscience as well. And so I got my degrees in nanotechnology and electrical engineering, but I always had this other vision of how it fit into different contexts. And growing up with both of my parents being artists and in this community that was very much about um, building new ways to live and creating new community, that also was something that I was always trying to fit together. So where, where does the art and the science and the community and the personal experience all come together? So, after I finished school and had the sort of existential crisis of well what is what is the meaning of all this technology that I'm developing and learning about, and how does it how does it both serve me as an individual and my personal exploration and our community in general? I've then sort of went on this journey to to piece it all together. and now I have developed this um, educational model that's all about merging our intuitive and analytical processes to understand the world around us, but also ourselves in in this both scientific and artistic way. And for me, again, it's, it's all about understanding and unraveling information and looking at things from different perspectives and different angles. I see the universe as this very sort of fractal plane where there's lots of repeating patterns that exist all around us and how can we sort of key into these patterns that exist on different scales to inform us on anything how to you know live our lives on a day-to-day basis or how to build big machines or just relate to each other in a more fulfilling way So it was a very, growing up here, it was very complex. There was a lot of complexity, but there there wasn't a fear of complexity. It was more of an adventure. There was more of a a courageousness to it with all of the artists coming through this space and in all of the opportunities we had as kids in this neighborhood and and all of the resources. It, It definitely taught us how to see and how to be and how to be courageous and adventurous and it was it was a lot of fun.
1: (laughs) Can you tell me about your experience growing up in this neighborhood and what what you think of when you think of your childhood here?
3: There were so many different people and and different ways of um, navigating the systems. You had to be smart. You had to have a a high level of of self-awareness. So growing up in the neighborhood, I went to the local alternative school and took part in all of the community garden activities and took music lessons and art lessons and dance. There's just so many different people, you know, it was it was it was beyond just a melting pot, too. It was more more of this infusion of creation and I think there was a high level of expectation too in the kids that like we were entrusted with with a legacy of this neighborhood too, um, that it was something that we had to take ownership to build the community and the the parents that raised children in this neighborhood always spoke to their children in a very mature way. You know, we were we were seen as uh, co-creators of this neighborhood. And so I think many of us grew up with that sense of responsibility. And those of us, a lot of us are still here, still working with our parents in different ways or working within the community to to help try to support that vision and that legacy that still exists here. You know, there, there has been a lot of sterilization that's kind of come in or or blight, or it's now, I think, probably 15 years post-gentrification, but there's still so much of what it represented in terms of, as my dad often likes to say, attention of many people. There's always sort of a push and pull, but that's what makes it interesting. It's sort of like, in ecological terms, there's something called an ecotone, a place that exists on the edge of two ecosystems, um, a place where there can be an emergence of new phenomenon, of new species, of new ideas that are created in a higher level of complexity or a high, higher level of entropy. And it makes it more difficult sometimes. Um, but you have to create, in order to, to, to navigate those sort of systems, you have to train yourself to have a larger capacity Uh, to hold more realities uh, more possibilities and that offers then the, the the opportunity to do a lot of different things
1: you do still come back and help your dad in the shop what do you do here with him
3: so right now we're focusing a lot on archiving on Maintaining the history, the stories that have come through here, the community, and the cultural experience of the Lori side. We're really trying to make sure that that's not erased because it's so easy for information to just fade into time, but you have to put effort and work into maintaining and solidifying the legacy of those stories. I think today. There's a lot of momentum in creating these alternative strategies for creating collective community or different ways of organizing, different ways of building business and capital. But it's not a new phenomenon, and I think many of us who are part of that movement think that we're creating these new ways of living, but are so there's they're so much history that we can and so much experience for us to build upon that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. And there was so much experimentation, I think, specifically done in the Lower East Side and the East Village that um, can be drawn upon and connecting with our elders and connecting with um, the experiences and the wisdom that they have is, is incredibly crucial, I think, right now for us to um, be able to accelerate and dive deeper into a, a collective sense of identity and culture and in, in, in a very intergenerational way as well. I think that the, this neighborhood specifically holds that institutional knowledge that we could really tap into.
1: Alex, I want to ask you where you see the future of the neighborhood going, or where would you like to see it go?
0: To me, it's always starting over again, ever since I've been coming down here. I started coming down here in my early childhood on the bicycle. I would ride down to uh, the village, which was Washington Square Park at that time. And then I would occasionally ride over in this direction here. This area here, was it was the worst. Boy come over here, I could, could feel the energy, you know, you, you just go, you stay in the street, you look straight ahead, you never, you never look.
1: Who was living here then? Italians.
0: And then once I moved into the neighborhood, they say, well, where's the rest of y'all? We're supposed to come behind us. <laughs> take them Oh, is that how that works? Then you just, well, whose place did you take? And there was a lot of that going on. Different groups would come in the neighborhood and take over the neighborhood and push everybody else out. Mm-hmm. That was the dynamics of New York City for a while. Most people don't know about that. So when the gentrification thing came along and began to, like, you know, grow roots, it's just a matter of uh, the people who realized the change was at hand, and the only way to survive with the change is to basically embrace and go with it. So somehow or another, I managed to do that. And what I mean by going with it, it's just a matter of change of attitude in terms of what you thought was bad, you have to now find a way of loving it, especially if you want to survive. Mm. So this was to me, 4th Street was like a microcosm of the world in terms of all the issues it had, all the politics, you name it, it was on 4th Street between 2nd Avenue and the Bowery. So basically, this was part of a 20-year plan. And early on, at the beginning of the 20-year plan, Most people, like me, was warned that there's a 20-year plan and you're not part of the plan. Oh, (laughs) thanks for letting me know. That's very important information. Now I know what I'm up against. And most people forget about the 20-year plan. So this whole block was put on the 20-year plan. Then it it gets down to me. I don't know what to do with me. (laughs) I I got everybody confused. Now they give me plenty of space. So I sit here all day, and people come in, and they spend a little bit of time. Three hours later, they leave, i smiling and shaking their head. I have a nice conversation with different people as they come in. Because that's what I initially wanted to do, now I have the time and the space to do it, and they have a different idea when they come in here, until they start looking. Then all of a sudden, their silence overwhelms them. The next thing you know, say, hey, look at this. It took me 18 years to do that. 18 years of studying people like that, to get them into what I do and have them be educated and enjoy what they're looking at and realize what they're looking at. So now anybody can come in here and get the same experience. And that comes from running this gallery here for 30-some years. Mm-hmm. Almost 40 years. Every day, seven days a week. I took very little time off.
1: So Alex, I'm wondering how you found this space on 4th Street.
0: So Most people I knew were smart, right? So I helped them and they in turn helped me. So anytime I needed something, you know, just expressed that and they would go to work on it. Then somebody said, well, there's a place over on 4th, 4th Street and then people are nice. I think they'll give you a place. You need to go over there. So I come over and make contact with them, explain to them what I really was interested in. And they kind of like look at me and say, yeah, sure. <laughs> I got that feeling. Right? So I said, okay, this is what I'm up against. Now, do I want to play these people? Do I really want the place? I said, yeah, I need, I need to make these moves. So I went downtown to the main office, explained to them what I wanted. they would like, yeah, sure too, right? Say, okay. I got some time I could play. So I decided to go down there every morning, sit in front of the guy's office as he's coming in. Hey, good morning, going on in. Hang out there doing some other stuff for about two hours and left. Then after a couple of weeks, he said, what do you want, <laughs> what do you want? So I came up with the paperwork. So the place they supposed to have was 60 the place directly across the street. Give it to the paper say, oh, no, 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 we going to take that space. You can have the place across the street. Eh, what's the difference? <laughs> so I came across. But it was yucked out for real. Boy, was it yucked out. Oof, they had that much dust on the floor. Oh. And all kind of other weird things in here. <laughs> but I had the right kind of group of people with me. You know, they didn't care. You know, they was they was happy to be doing something stupid, right? <laughs> so we cleaned the place up. took about six months to clean it up. Redid everything. And the place was magnificent. I worked it and worked it and worked it. Boy, it was so perfectly beautiful. Wow. Then I got noticed. They came in one morning and said, we're going to redo your electric. I said, great. They redid the whole electric, right? Then the next month said, you got to leave. So I had to leave here for three years.
1: Why did they ask you to leave? They
0: want to redo the place. Oh. I got cement floors now. Mm-hmm. You think I want cement floors? I got a lower ceiling. I got less space going that way.
1: What was the point for them? Were they, were, were they expanding the spaces oh, next to it that was or the what? Begin-
0: that was the beginning of urban renewal. This community here was, was run by this interesting person called Golden, Miss Golden. Golden, I forget her first name. And that was during the era of Robert Moses. And Robert Mose was the builder, and he proposed building a highway across the Lancy Street from the bridge. So people coming out of Long Island would not have to stop in New York City and go straight into the Holland Tunnel. And that would have destroyed most of Little Italy and all those other places. So she decided to put up a fight about all of that and wound up fighting for this area here. So this became her little pet in terms of protecting it. And I showed up, right? So I had to become friends with her. And then I had a show with somebody that's very controversial. And then one night, all those nice people finally found an excuse to beat up on me and get rid of me, right? So they came knocking at the door about 11 o'clock at night. Bam, 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 bam. When I get under stress, I like to take time out and study my feelings. Because I realize that, damn, man, the bottom of my feet sweating. <laughs> Upon your feet, never sweat in your life. What's going on here? you <laughs> the people upset you, huh? People planning to run for a couple of miles? Huh? Some of your ancestors just woke up. <laughs> I uh, got on the phone and called all my people, told them that neighborhood had decided they didn't like me anymore. <laughs> and they wanted to get rid of me. You need to come over. They all showed up, right? So other group came in, they looked at all these strange, ridiculous people sitting in here. <laughs> they came in like little kids. <laughs> I said, damn. I was always trying to engage these these conversations about likes and dislikes, misunderstandings, understandings. So that was the first time I kind of like really got involved in that level of conversation with people. And I started pulling people with these different persuasions in terms conversation, you know, getting them to talk with each other. Better understanding, you know, there's different points of views, but basically, you all have the same point of view. It's just a matter of what angle you're coming at it. And a lot of people that I was basically ignoring, I started to, to take a better look at in terms of, the, well, they need help also.
1: How did you try to start those conversations?
0: Well, the first thing I asked them about, well, what do you do? That's the beginning of the conversation right there. I mean, you know, it's beginning to emerge some my understandings of what they're doing and how they're thinking in those different areas. Oh, what are they doing about that in terms of people that they're around? What kind of job that they have?
1: I just want to ask, Alex, you were photographing during a time of very intense change politically in the United States, and... I'm wondering how you saw your role in that as someone who was able to document it and offer your specific perspective as an artist.
0: Well, I was always a passive onlooker to the whole political experience. I was brought up in the church as a religious experience, Uh, and the political experience was not really there in terms of the people that was raising me. Uh, The political experience, basically, is, from my point of view, is like an alien, urban experience, dealing with have and have-nots. So I always kind of, like, felt excluded from that. But at the same time, yes, I did photograph various aspects of that at at key important times. And the reason I photographed that is I (laughs) had seen something different in it. As opposed to how other people was dealing with it, one of the pieces I got up there is of this um, person in Times Square, retail guy, He's standing in front of his store. On the bottom left there's this uh, wind-up tap dance toy, stereo tip, and he had two buttons. And I was during that was 1960, very important election, and I was working as at district attorney's office at that point in time, so I was all over the city photographing different things that was happening. So I always went down to Times Square when I felt bored, because Times Square was always jumping with something. So I happened on that scene there and seeing him standing there like that. And then with my good keen sense of sight, I spotted the button that he got on him, and the button he got on there is an election button. And the button that he have underneath that is the button for Nixon. And that button says, you can't lick our dick. Then I went on to photograph very political things that was happening in Harlem at the same time. It was like a, uh, it's like a contradiction in the way of how I think about serious things and putting them in a different light. And that, that different light generally was based on beauty and composition and basically about art, abstract art. So some of the serious things i seen, I, I you know, I had to change the visual conversation and... Put it in put it in a different light, as the saying goes. So people didn't see it for what it was, but seeing what it what what it could have been. So I do a lot of research now in terms of some of the stuff that I had done to give it the justification for putting it up on the wall and being able to defend it mm-hmm. with whatever words I have, you know, that I've learned that I now could apply to that image.
1: Could you tell me about some of your favorite photos that you've taken or favorite people that you've gotten to work with over the years?
0: Well. Favorite to me is what somebody else likes. <laughs> I have to go with that part of it. Some of my earlier work in the 50s has become kind of like uh, important in terms of how people want to feel about things. So it's more about what somebody buys, to put it in a frame, to put it on the wall, to look at it. That says more about, you know, what I like, because most of that work is buried, and when it goes out of here and put in a nice frame and goes on the wall, you know, that is my best picture. So my best picture, I can't put them all up. I have about 10,000 of my best pictures, and I go through them every day until I'm trying to select the ones I like at that point in time. And I generally finally get down near the bottom and I say, boy, is that where that is? I've been thinking about that, (laughs) but I could never get to it. (laughs) And then next thing you know, it disappears again. And whatever else I come up in terms of compromise, that's what goes up. Mm -hmm. The average price of these prints here are $160, as opposed to $5,000. They're getting a similar quality, sometimes better than that $5,000 print.
3: We have the GoFundMe right now. We have a website, uh, the4thstreetphotogallery.com. We have an Instagram. Street Photo, and Alex also sells his prints uh, on Etsy, um, and uh, the majority of all of those profits go back into the gallery of of all of the prints that he sells and are available for tax-deductible donations
1: as well. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we leave you today, Alex?
0: Send money. (laughs)
1: Thanks so much for listening. My name is Ellie Cody, and this has been Manhattan Sideways. If you'd like to learn more about
2: this particular business or to discover and read about thousands of other fascinating small businesses on the side streets of Manhattan, please visit our website, sideways.nyc. And of course, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NY Sideways.